This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of graphic material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. In March of 1989, American college student Mark Kilroy disappeared in the middle of the night in the border town of Matamoros, Mexico. After weeks of detective work in both Mexico and Texas, Mexican authorities found a man who claimed to know the location of the body. He led police to an isolated ranch where they found a macabre altar and a windowless shack. Buried nearby was not only Kilroy's body, but numerous other victims. They were not bodies, but mutilated remnants torn apart so viciously they were hardly recognizable. All died at the hands of one man and his small band of loyal followers. The man's name was Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo, and the violent cult he led is known as the Narco-Satanists. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults. Today's episode is the second installment in our series covering the Narco-Satanists. Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo founded the cult in Mexico City in 1985. It was an insular cult with only about 20 known members, all of whom took part in ritual killings in the name of the ancient gods. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast, and on Twitter, at Parcast Network. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. In part one, we investigated Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo. He was born in Miami in 1962 to a mother who practiced the traditional Cuban religions of Santeria and Palo Mayombe. 
Adolfo traveled to Mexico City in the early 1980s in search of potential clients for his mystical services. He claimed the ritual sacrifice of animals gave him power and soon gained a small following of about five people. Today, in part two, we'll investigate the cult itself, its membership, its evolution into a drug trafficking business, and its shocking crimes. We'll explore the psychology that kept followers by Adolfo's side as he murdered his victims. Finally, we'll examine the cult's explosive end after the murder of American college student Mark Kilroy in 1989. Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo left Miami for Mexico City in 1983 to start a spiritual consultation service, predicting the future for his clients by reading cards and shells. His reputation as an accurate fortune teller, as well as his skill at manipulating those around him, gained him a small but devoted following. One of his followers was a corrupt police officer named Salvador Vidal. Using Vidal's connections, Adolfo began taking bribes from drug smugglers in exchange for protection from the police. Adolfo met a cocaine smuggler named Guillermo Calzada in September of 1986 and began advising him when to ship drugs. Salvador Vidal made sure the police left Calzada's shipments alone and his profits increased. By early 1987, Adolfo was making tens of thousands of dollars through drug trafficking. His followers noticed a change in him. He became obsessive in his quest for money and grew increasingly ruthless. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Greg. According to researcher Sherry Johnson, narcissists are often obsessive in the search for power and wealth. We can't say that Adolfo was a narcissist in a clinical sense, but a lack of empathy, a willingness to exploit others, and an inflated sense of self-importance are all narcissistic tendencies. Based on the testimony of his followers, we know Adolfo exhibited these traits often. Calzada paid Adolfo several thousand dollars a month for his services. But as Adolfo learned about the business, he wanted more. He griped Omar and Martin, two followers who were also his roommates and lovers, that his magic and connections were making Calzada's profits possible. He deserved half the money, he said. Of course, they agreed. In a meeting at Calzada's house in April of 1987, Adolfo proposed an even split between the two of them. Calzada said no. Adolfo flew into a rage, and Calzada ordered him out. Adolfo was incensed, but he apologized several days later, blaming his behavior on an evil spell. To make amends, he insisted on a free ceremony for the whole family. He told Calzada to gather everyone the next day. On April 30th, 1987, Adolfo arrived at the Calzada home. Present for the ritual were Calzada himself, his wife, his mother, his maid, his business partner, his secretary, and his bodyguard. Adolfo began his Palo Mayombe chants, but soon after, two men burst in with guns drawn. One was his lover and right-hand man, Martin. Followers claim the other gunman was Salvador Vidal, though he was never charged. They killed all seven people. Then they removed various body parts including fingers, vertebrae, hearts, sexual organs, and even the brains of two corpses. 
then finally dumped the bodies in a river. When police found them a week later, in early May of 1987, they could only identify three of them. The other four were too brutally mutilated. According to Omar, Martine refused to speak of the incident, but Adolfo recounted the murders for his followers, saying the body parts would live on in the Nganga, a cauldron of human and animal remains the cult believed held magical power. By describing the events to them in detail, Adolfo had made his followers accessories to the murders, but they were all too loyal to him to leave the cult. Forensic psychology professor Catherine Ramsland writes that killers who seek partners in crime are notably adept at vetting and grooming people who are likely to participate with them. Al Carlisle, a former prison psychologist, describes the relationship as such. Quote, the dominant person needs the follower's total loyalty in order to validate him or herself. The subservient follower needs the power and authority of the dominant person, so he or she attempts to become that person's shadow and to mirror the dominant person's beliefs and ethics. Each receives justification from the other." End quote. Adolfo and his followers were apparently well down this path by the time of the Calzada murders. A month after the murders, in June of 1987, Salvador Vidal transferred to the city of Matamoros. Matamoros is just south of the Texas border. Adolfo seized on the opportunity to expand his operation to the border and told Vidal to find someone to partner with. Not content with his takeover of the Calzada business, Adolfo was relentlessly expanding his influence. Vidal found a drug smuggler named Elio Hernandez in mid-July of 1987. Elio was in his 20s and had only been the leader of his family's drug business for seven months. His brother had run the business before him, but was gunned down outside a restaurant in January of 1987. Elio was violent and impulsive, with little leadership experience. Plus, his business was in trouble. The Hernandezes were desperate, which made them ideal candidates for Adolfo's services. Adolfo hatched a plan to worm his way into the Hernandez family. It started with Elio's ex-girlfriend, a 22-year-old woman named Sara Aldrete. Salvador Vidal's research revealed that Elio still carried a torch for Sarah, even though he was married. Adolfo saw her as his ticket in. On July 30, 1987, Adolfo and Martin cut Sarah off in traffic and stopped in front of her, refusing to move. With traffic piling up behind them, Adolfo approached her car and insisted that he wanted to meet her. Though she just wanted him to move, Sarah eventually relented, either due to exasperation or fear. Adolfo lied and told Sarah he was a lawyer from Miami. She asked about the beaded necklace he wore. It's part of my religion, he said, but would say no more. Preying on her curiosity, he suggested they meet again the next day for lunch. Adolfo began drawing Sarah in over the following weeks in August of 1987, he told her about Santeria and Paolo Mayombe, though he left out any mention of his human sacrifices. He claimed he was a Santero Cristiano, or Christian Santero, presumably so as not to scare her off. When he told Sarah he could divine the future by reading cards, she asked that he read the cards for her. Adolfo refused. She was not ready. While Adolfo pursued her, Sarah was still dating another man. But that August, the man received a phone call in which an anonymous caller told him Sarah was cheating on him. This led to them having a fight and breaking up. Adolfo knew about Sarah's breakup the next time they spoke, 
claiming he had foreseen it. He then agreed to finally read the cards for her. After reading them, he made three predictions. She would get money from her school for the next semester, she would receive a phone call from an old friend, and someone she once dated would come to her with a problem. As he had with so many others, he then reeled off accurate details about her life. His three predictions and all the details of her life were based on the detective work of Salvador Vidal. But to Sarah, it felt like magic. This impressed Sarah, but also served as an early test by which Adolfo could gauge her willingness to go along with his so-called magic. Sarah was falling victim to what psychologist Robert Lifton calls mystical manipulation, the presenting of prearranged events as spontaneous and supernatural. It's worth remembering that most of Adolfo's followers demonstrated their susceptibility to mystical manipulation to him early on, in the seemingly harmless act of reading the cards or throwing the cowrie shells. The first two of his predictions came true soon after. Sarah received a scholarship from her school, and an old friend did call her. When she told Adolfo, he reacted as if he expected nothing less. Adolfo's confident and accurate predictions convinced Sarah that he really could see the future. She became a believer, and soon after, became his girlfriend. His plan to get to Elio was playing out just as he hoped. During September of 1987, Adolfo maintained his relationship with Sarah in much the same way as with Omar and Martine. He was unaffectionate, but often generous with his money. When he finally told her he was bisexual in October, she was angry, but she didn't leave. He had no interest in her beyond her connection to the Hernandez family, but he continued to manipulate her into staying by his side as he waited and hoped for Elio to find her. To Adolfo, she was a resource to exploit. His unyielding quest for power dictated his every decision, even in his intimate relationships. Adolfo's time and money spent on Sarah paid off in November of 1987. Sarah was at a taco stand when she heard a man call her name. She turned to see Elio Hernandez running toward her across the street. Elio told Sarah that his family was down on its luck. His brother had been killed 10 months before, and now he feared for his own life. That and the responsibilities of running a drug smuggling operation were getting to him. Sarah told him she knew a man who could help. He was a witch. Adolfo's third prediction about Sarah came true, and the next piece of his plan had now fallen into place. Elio Hernandez was in his sights. Elio was a prime target for mystical manipulation. Maria Konnikova, an expert in con artists, identifies traumatic life changes as a major contributing factor to whether someone will fall for a con. The combined stress of leadership, fear of rival drug dealers, and the plight of his family after his brother's death made Elio exactly the target Adolfo needed. Sarah was vital to the plan. Elio's attraction to her was a weakness that Adolfo could exploit. He planned to initiate Elio into the cult, then use Sarah to control him. However, he needed to initiate Sarah first as a way to establish her at the top of the cult's hierarchy. He wanted her to be La Madrina, the godmother, the way he was El Padrino, the godfather. On March 23, 1988, Sarah traveled to Mexico City, where Adolfo was spending the winter. That night, Omar blindfolded Sarah and led her into a darkened room. 
Adolfo began chanting in the hissing voice he used when supposedly possessed by the spirit of his mystical cauldron, the Nganga. Someone ran a chicken along Sarah's body before cutting its head off, as in the initiation ceremonies of Adolfo and the others. A larger animal brushed against her. She realized it was a goat after she heard it bleeding. Someone chopped its head off, and Sarah felt the blood spray onto her. Adolfo tore her shirt off and carved several symbols into her back, as he had for all of his initiates. He told her that her soul was dead and that the other followers were her family now. She was their godmother, their madrina, and they would obey her. She was now Rayado. Sarah could now serve as a lieutenant for Adolfo and Matamoros. Followers were to report to her in his absence, and it was up to Sarah to report to him if anyone broke the rules. Adolfo had three principal rules for his followers. First, to obey his orders absolutely. The gods had no mercy, he said, and neither did he. Second, they had to accept the gods and spirits of the dead, particularly Kadi and Pembe, the devourer of souls. They could not attend church. Christians were animals, he reminded them. And third, as his own padrino had, Adolfo forbade any drug use. If they did not remain pure, he told his followers they would die. Imposing strict rules on cult followers makes them more likely to stay with the cult. Sociologists Richard Sosis and Eric Bressler determined this in a study of religious communes. The effect is only present in religious groups and not secular ones. If members feel they're serving a higher power, in this case the gods of Palo Mayombe, they tend to react positively to rules, even if the rules seem unnecessary. Elio underwent his own Rayado ceremony the next day, on March 24, 1988. After the ceremony, Adolfo proposed the business side of their deal. He would receive half of what the family made, but he offered a money-back guarantee. He would take nothing if their profits didn't increase. Such an arrangement may have seemed generous to Elio, but to Adolfo, he was another pawn to exploit in his selfish pursuit of control. He offered the deal because he was confident he could deliver on it. While Adolfo claimed he would increase profits with his powerful magic, his plan to pull it off was simple business networking. The Hernandez family had lost important connections in the drug trafficking world after Elio's brother was killed. But Salvador Vidal could use his corrupt police contacts to reestablish those connections. As usual, Adolfo's magic was merely him exploiting his relationships with unethical police officers. It was through this exploitation that Adolfo was able to build a lucrative narcotics business. By preying on the desperate, he weaseled his way into an established drug trade and created a pathway for his cult to thrive. Unfortunately, this only increased his tendencies toward violence, and the murderous devastation Adolfo would unleash would be sickening to look upon. We'll return to our story in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to cults. 
Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo spent the winter of 1987 and 1988 in Mexico City. It was there where he indoctrinated Sara Aldrete and drug Lord Elio Hernandez into his burgeoning cult. Hernandez operated out of Matamoros, a border town just south of Texas, and Adolfo had his eyes set on finding a partner to establish business operations there. By using mystical manipulation to trick Elio into believing in Adolfo, the latter had found a way to pursue the things he coveted most, money and power. Once they were back in Matamoros in April of 1988, Adolfo asked Elio to gather his most loyal men. Elio rounded up five employees, El Dubi, Carlos, Aurelio, Sergio, and Malio. El Dubi was a ruthless enforcer and was known for getting in gunfights in Matamoros bars. Carlos made money selling cocaine to tourists. Aurelio was the foreman of Rancho Santa Elena, the Hernandez base of operations. Sergio was Elio's cousin and had experience running drug shipments. Finally, there was Malio, a college student from a wealthy family. Adolfo saw the potential to make Malio a leader within the business. These five men formed the core of Adolfo's cult in Matamoros. During the first half of April 1988, Adolfo and Sara taught them the ways of Santeria and Palomayombe in Sara's living room. During April, three weeks after Sara and Elio had been initiated, the five men were cut into the cult themselves. Adolfo now had five loyal foot soldiers to use however he saw fit. Salvador Vidal saw to it that the Hernandez business thrived again. Shortly after the mid-April initiation of the new members, he arranged for one ton of federally seized marijuana to fall into Elio's hands. Adolfo's rituals ensured his mysticism got the credit for their success. He told Elio the name of a buyer he claimed to have identified through cowrie shells. The drugs brought a $200,000 profit. The crew continued to make similar deals between April and May of 1988. Adolfo and Salvador secured deals through business channels, but Adolfo presented them to Elio as the result of black magic. The Hernandez family was making more money than ever. But as always, it didn't satisfy Adolfo's relentless drive to increase his power and wealth. In late May, he proposed to Elio that they expand their business by stealing drugs from rival smugglers. Aurelio, the foreman of Rancho Santa Elena, learned of a small-time drug trafficker named Hector de la Fuente. De la Fuente stored his marijuana at a farm next to Aurelio's house. Aurelio saw this and told Adolfo. On May 28, 1988, Adolfo's gang went after de la Fuente. The gang found the trafficker in town, kidnapped him, and brought him to his stash. The five new initiates were all there, Aurelio, El Dubi, Carlos, Sergio, and Malio as well as Adolfo and Martin. They arrived at the farm where the drugs were hidden to find Moises Castillo, the 52-year-old son of the farmer who owned the land. Castillo lived in Texas, but was there to help his elderly father with his farm. They took the marijuana, as well as trafficker De La Fuente and Castillo, the farmer's son, and drove back to Rancho Santa Elena. They hid the drugs and then brought the two kidnapped men to a nearby orchard. With gun in hand, Adolfo asked the men if they were good Christians. De La Fuente remained silent, but Castillo replied that, yes, he was a Christian. 
Adolfo reminded his men that Christians were animals and that they sacrificed animals. Then he shot the two men in the head. His men, hardened as they were from their work in the drug trade, were nevertheless shocked. One of them vomited. Adolfo likely welcomed this reaction. His actions made clear that he was willing to go to any lengths to achieve his own ends. Adolfo's conviction that outsiders deserve to die is what psychologist Robert Lifton refers to as the dispensing of existence. This refers to a group claiming to have the authority to decide who should be allowed to live. Many cults adopt this attitude, but far fewer do so with as literal an interpretation as Adolfo. Adolfo's casual execution of De La Fuente and Castillo may have disturbed his own men, but it also gained him some admirers in the violent culture of the drug trade. The ranks of his cult swelled. In June 1988, he initiated Serafine Hernandez, usually called Little Serafine, to distinguish him from his father, who most called Old Serafine. Little Serafine was Elio's nephew. He was not considered smart or competent, but he had one quality that made him a valuable member of the cult. He was an American citizen and could cross the border much more easily than other followers. Little Serafine took to his status as a cult member with enthusiasm, quickly developing a swagger and attitude that drew attention in the Matamoros bar and club scene. He became a useful recruiting agent. By mid-June of 1988, the Matamoros chapter of the cult increased from seven to 12 followers. Salvador continued to arrange lucrative drug deals, and Adolfo continued to take credit for the success. His rituals moved from Sarah's apartment to a shack on the ranch, and he decided it was time to make an anganga for Rancho Santa Elena. He began compiling the ingredients for the cauldron. In early July of 1988, Adolfo and Martin returned to Mexico City. Sarah joined them. They hadn't been there long before longtime follower Jorge Montes came to Adolfo with a problem. Jorge wanted to get rid of his roommate, Ramon. Ramon was an antique salesman who also performed in Mexico City's red light district as a character called La Claudia. Ramon was a former lover of Jorge's. Though they still lived together, their relationship had deteriorated. Ramon frequently came home drunk with younger men, raising a ruckus in the building. He also occasionally refused to let Jorge's card-reading clients into the apartment. In July of 1988, Ramon accused Jorge of stealing one of his antiques. He stormed through the house, upending furniture. When he kicked one of Jorge's beloved pet poodles, it was the last straw. Jorge turned to Adolfo for help dealing with Ramon. On the night of July 16, 1988, Adolfo, Jorge, and some other followers, including Martin and Omar, waited for Ramon in Jorge's apartment. When Ramon returned home, the men dragged him into the bathtub. Martin bound his hands and covered his mouth with duct tape. Adolfo cut off his toes, fingers, and genitals. Jorge and Omar fled the room. Another follower vomited. Adolfo had sacrificed many animals in front of them, but he had never done anything like this. They hadn't expected him to butcher the man in Jorge's bathroom. Adolfo partially skinned Ramon before finally killing him. Adolfo then collected Ramon's blood in a container, took several bones, and removed his brain from his skull. He now had the human soul he needed for Rancho Santa Elena's Nganga. 
Adolfo believed sacrificial victims would better serve his nganga if they died in immense pain and fear. Santeria and Palo Mayombe scholar Mijene Gonzalez Whipler writes that some poleros torture and boil a black cat to place in the nganga. She describes this type of nganga as being exclusively for evil deeds. It seems Adolfo applied this philosophy to his human victims. He created his own religion in which torture and murder were not only tolerated, but were integral to the practice of it. Adolfo was becoming increasingly ruthless in both his killing habits and his business dealings. In August of 1988, Adolfo and Salvador Vidal set up their biggest deal yet. Salvador had seized 75 kilograms of cocaine, about 165 pounds. They planned to offer the drugs for $800,000 to a buyer named El Gancho. Elio and his brother, Ovidio Hernandez, had set up the deal. El Gancho was the brother of one of their in-laws. He and the Hernandezes had done smaller drug deals before. But Adolfo had no plans to give El Gancho the drugs. He planned to steal his money and keep the drugs. Elio and Ovidio protested, not wanted to betray a relative, but Adolfo insisted. As always, the needs of his followers were secondary to his pursuit of wealth. They took the money at gunpoint when El Gancho arrived. Elio and Ovidio apologized to him. He replied that his boss would kill him for this, but they still took the money. El Gancho's boss wasn't about to give up so easily, though. Three days after the robbery, El Gancho kidnapped Ovidio and his two-year-old son. Ovidio called Elio and frantically begged him to return the money. If El Gancho didn't have the money back by the following day, he was going to kill Ovidio and his toddler. Elio knew Adolfo would never give the money back. In desperation, he and his brother, old Seraphine, turned to the police. But the police insisted they admit the kidnapping was the result of a drug deal gone bad, something the brothers refused to do. The officers would not help. With nowhere to turn, Elio sought Adolfo's advice. Adolfo ordered Elio to find a victim for a ritual. Elio drove until he saw a drifter and offered the man a ride. The man accepted. Elio drove back to Rancho Santa Elena, where the cult hauled him into the shack with the Nganga. There, Adolfo sent everyone out except Elio, who stayed to assist him. Adolfo began cutting the man. He deposited various body parts in the Nganga and requested protection for Ovidio. Then he killed the man. After he placed his brain in the Nganga, he made Elio cut the man's heart out. Ovidio and his son came home safely the next day on August 13, 1988. In the later investigation of the cult, police never determined why. They speculated that El Gancho and his partners worried they could be identified, or perhaps they simply didn't have it in them to kill a man and his child. But as far as the cult was concerned, it was Adolfo's ceremony. In the fall of 1988, Adolfo became even more murderous. Members reported that he clearly enjoyed the killing. They were all afraid of him. Adolfo's growing preoccupation with murder fit a common pattern among serial killers. Criminologist Stephen Gianangelo described in his book, The Psychopathology of Serial Murder, how serial killers become more dangerous over time. If a killer gets away with murder, it leads to increased confidence. If the killer feels excitement from it, this confidence leads to more murders. 
After a while, the killer becomes comfortable with murder and eventually even desperate for it. This pattern is similar to Adolfo's murders. He had waited a year after the Calzada murders before he killed again. But once he began killing on a regular basis, he wanted it more and more. Adolfo tightened his grip on the cult through not only fear, but manipulation as well. When Elio complained in October that Sarah would not sleep with him, Adolfo sensed an opportunity to strengthen his own influence. He ordered her to do so. She protested, but he countered that once she bedded Elio, her control over him would be even greater than before. Sarah relented and slept with Elio. Sarah was demonstrating a common characteristic of a victim of mystical manipulation. Robert Lifton writes that people who have been successfully manipulated will merge their own psychology with that of the leader, even to the point where they will start engaging in the manipulation of others. Sarah was doing just that to Elio through having sex with him, even though she didn't want to. Murder became commonplace for Adolfo and the cult in late 1988 and the winter of 1989. In November, he killed one of his own followers for using cocaine, violating his ban on drug use. In December, he killed Salvador Vidal's two police assistants because Vidal didn't trust them anymore. In February of 1989 alone, the cult killed five people. One of the cult's victims that February was a 14-year-old boy. Adolfo made Elio murder the child after several other cult members noticed the boy walking past the ranch. Elio swiftly killed him with a machete, but then Elio realized the boy he'd just killed was his second cousin. Elio was understandably upset, but Adolfo did not commiserate with him. Adolfo was molding his followers in his own image. He wanted them to kill without hesitation, to see people the way he saw them as a means to an end. Adolfo craved more and more sacrificial victims, but in mid-March of 1989, he performed a sacrifice that he interpreted as a bad omen. And this interpretation wasn't necessarily incorrect because that sacrifice would be one that eventually led to the downfall of the narco-Satanist cult. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, back to the story. By the late winter of 1989, Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo had successfully established his drug smuggling operation in the border city of Matamoros, Mexico. He had also cemented his place at the head of a murderous cult. His followers noticed he was becoming less interested in the magical side of his rituals and seemed increasingly fixated on the killing itself. He was now murdering victims on a weekly basis. Again, Adolfo fit the serial killer's pattern Stephen Gianangelo described. Gianangelo cites a desire for control as a common aspect of a killer's crimes. In his book, Real Life Monsters, he writes that this desire could be a factor, quote, that manifests itself in the ultimate act of control, the murder and repeated murder of other human beings, end quote. Adolfo's manipulative tactics were always ruthlessly self-serving. He did little to hide his pursuit of control. It may have been a driving factor in his many murders. On March 13th of 1989, Adolfo demanded another victim. The gang found a drug dealer selling cocaine in a bar they considered part of their territory. They brought him back to the ranch. Adolfo began his brutal routine, cutting and skinning the man while he was still alive. 
but the man would not scream. Adolfo could not elicit a sound from him. He could not bring the man's pain and fear to the surface. Adolfo considered the sacrifice a failure. He'd wanted to kill someone softer, someone who would scream. Adolfo realized his ideal target was someone young, like a college student. Conveniently, spring break was in full swing in Matamoros. The next night, March 14, 1989, followers Malio and Little Seraphine set out in Seraphine's pickup truck to find a victim. At 2 a.m., as college students streamed across the bridge from Matamoros on the Mexican side to Brownsville on the Texas side, the cult members saw a blonde 21-year-old named Mark Kilroy. They offered him a ride. Exhausted from a night of partying, Kilroy accepted the offer. They drove Kilroy to Rancho Santa Elena and tied him up, then left him in the back of a truck for the night. The next morning, Domingo Reyes, the caretaker of the ranch, found Kilroy. He brought him some eggs for breakfast. The caretaker felt sorry for the boy, but he knew better than to offer more help. He retreated to his house on the ranch before any followers found him helping their victim. At midday on March 15, 1989, the cult convened on the ranch at the Nganga shack. While they stood outside the shack, Adolfo tortured, raped, and killed Kilroy. He made El Dubi, one of the original five Matamoros followers, cut his heart out. His brain was placed in the Nganga. Adolfo said the brain of an educated person would make it smarter, better able to carry out complex tasks. But now, the cult's murderous tendencies had crossed an international border. There would be much more scrutiny. Kilroy's friends were already frantically looking for him. Police started investigating. Mark Kilroy's father became a daily fixture at the bridge between Brownsville and Matamoros during March of 1989, handing out flyers with his son's picture on them. The disappearance had occurred on Mexican soil and thus was legally the jurisdiction of Mexican authorities. But Kilroy's uncle, a U.S. customs supervisor, pushed for an investigation to take place on the U.S. side as well. Mexican police also had great incentive to solve the case. The negative publicity could cripple the tourism economy, which many Mexican cities relied on, including Matamoros. For the last two weeks of March, neither side made headway. Kilroy had disappeared late at night while the streets of Matamoros were crowded with drunken college students. It was impossible to find reliable leads. A break came on April 1st, 1989, though authorities didn't know it at the time. A red pickup truck drove through a drug checkpoint of the Mexican federal police without even slowing down. The driver was little Serafine Hernandez. Officers on the scene found Serafine's behavior suspicious, so they tailed him without alerting him to their presence. Serafine wouldn't have cared even if he'd known they were following him. He accelerated through the checkpoint because, as he later told them, he believed his cult's magic made him literally invisible to the police. The officers followed him to Rancho Santa Elena, then staked it out. Once Seraphine left, they looked around and concluded the ranch was likely a stopping point for drug shipments. Police began to monitor the Hernandezes. On April 8, 1989, the cult went through with a $300,000 drug deal. The federal police were watching the family and listening to their conversation via tapped cellular phones. They arrested Elio, Little Seraphine, and two other cult members the next day, April 9th, for drug trafficking. 
The Hernandezes were not afraid to speak to the police, and according to officers, seemed strangely unconcerned with their arrest. They almost seemed amused by it. Police couldn't understand why the men were so convinced they were safe. The Hernandezes, of course, believed the spirits and their padrino were protecting them from harm. Then police arrested Domingo, the caretaker. Domingo was not a drug dealer, nor was he a follower. Police quickly intimidated him into talking. He admitted that the family was involved in drugs, but also said that people sometimes came to the ranch and never left. He mentioned that one of them had been a blonde American. The officers suddenly became much more interested. One of them showed him a picture of Mark Kilroy. Domingo recognized it immediately. Yes, that was him, he told them. On April 9, 1989, the day the federal police arrested Elio and little Seraphine, Ovidio Hernandez called Adolfo and told him the followers were in police custody. Adolfo, Martin, El Duby, and Sara fled to Mexico City in the early morning hours of April 10th and met up with Omar. On April 11th, little Seraphine directed the police to several bodies buried at Rancho Santa Elena. They found the remains of Mark Kilroy, as well as numerous mutilated corpses that were missing fingers, ears, toes, hearts, genitals, and brains. Some of the graves, including Kilroy's, were marked by a piece of wire protruding from the ground. Seraphine explained to police that the wire was wrapped around the spine of each corpse. Once a body was sufficiently decomposed, they could use the wire to pull the spinal column from the ground. The victim's vertebrae could then be made into a necklace, which Adolfo said would bring luck to the wearer. Seraphine and the others freely told authorities about Adolfo and the rest of the cult. They believed the police could do nothing since Adolfo's magic protected them. The followers' confidence that authorities held no power over them was the result of perfectly executed mystical manipulation. The cult got away with their crimes for as long as they did, mainly due to the corrupt police work of Salvador Vidal. In this respect, they were no different from any other drug trafficking operation. But through countless ceremonies and sacrifices, Adolfo fooled them into thinking his magic was the reason. He was so effective that even after the followers confessed to the crimes, they had more faith in Adolfo's magic than in the law's ability to charge them. After the discovery of the bodies on April 11, 1989, the manhunt for Adolfo and the remaining followers was on. While holed up in one of the cult's condos, Adolfo, Martin, Sarah, Omar, and Duby watched the police uncover the bodies on the news. The report was accompanied by a picture of Adolfo. The five fugitives cut and dyed their hair to make themselves less recognizable. They prepared to live a life on the run. The group remained indoors as much as possible. They spent several days in one location and then moved on to the next. Adolfo became tyrannical during this period, particularly towards Sarah. Sarah was becoming less mentally stable by the day. She became listless and begged to go home to her parents. Adolfo feared she would betray them to the police and told her he would never let her leave. Adolfo was still convinced they could escape, thinking his magic and cunning would see them through the crisis. He called Salvador Vidal and told him to steal a cocaine shipment in Guadalajara. This would provide the money to bribe their way out of Mexico. He told his follower Maria, his mother's old friend, to arrange for counterfeit passports for the group. 
He also demanded that she find a plastic surgeon to alter their looks. The group bounced between hiding places during April of 1989, while police remained a step behind. But time was running out. Police noticed similarities between the Calzada murders, the murder of Jorge's roommate Ramon, and the bodies at Rancho Santa Elena. On the recommendation of two Palo Mayombe experts flown in from Miami, the police burned the Nganga shed at Rancho Santa Elena to the ground on April 22, 1989. The experts advised that this would rile Adolfo so much he might make a mistake. They were right. The group was at a remote cabin when they saw the shed and the Nganga burning on the news. According to followers, Adolfo shot the TV with a machine gun, then destroyed objects around the cabin while screaming for over an hour. The noose was tightening on Adolfo in late April. Salvador Vidal informed him in a phone call that he had seen the destruction of the Nganga. He believed Adolfo's magic was gone. He would no longer help them. They had no source of money for their escape. Once a loyal partner, Vidal was now distancing himself from Adolfo as the police closed in. Adolfo saw the end coming. He made the others agree to a suicide pact. If authorities closed in, Omar was to kill Adolfo and Martin, then the others, then himself. Adolfo announced they would return to Mexico City. Things became increasingly bleak for the group. Jorge Montez was arrested the day before they returned, on April 27, 1989, they arrived at a dingy apartment in Mexico City that Maria had found. Five days later, on May 2nd, Adolfo sent Sarah to find a payphone and call the plastic surgeon he hoped would alter their looks enough for them to pass out of the country. She spoke to the man, but he refused to help them and hung up the phone. She also telephoned a neighbor of her parents during this outing to check on her family. She told them Adolfo had kidnapped her and that she wanted to escape. Authorities arrived outside the apartment the cult was holed up in on May 6, 1989. But they weren't there for Adolfo. They were investigating an unrelated case. When Adolfo saw the police car outside, he yelled to the others that the chase was over. As they armed themselves, he opened the window and aimed his submachine gun at an officer. According to Sarah and El Duby, Adolfo cried, quote, Mother, this is it, end quote, and fired on the police. A vicious gun battle ensued. Adolfo threw wads of money out the window, hoping to cause enough mayhem among bystanders that he could escape. When that didn't work, he trained his gunfire on a propane tank nearby. He hoped to blow up the tank and start a fire. It didn't work. Sensing the end was near, Adolfo ordered Omar to burn the several thousand dollars of remaining money they had. If he couldn't have it, he would not let anyone else have it, he said. When El Duby handed him two bullet magazines and told him they were all that was left, Adolfo knew his time was up. Adolfo demanded that they carry out the suicide pact, but Omar refused to kill Adolfo and Martin. Adolfo ordered El Duby to do it. He didn't want to either but Adolfo assured him he would be back from the dead. Sarah screamed at El Duby to do it, and he reluctantly agreed. Adolfo and Martin stood in a closet in the bedroom, and El Duby emptied the gun's magazine into them. But he didn't kill anyone else. It was over. 
In press releases that came directly after the incident, authorities said the police killed Adolfo. But they later changed the story and announced that El Dubi killed Martin and Adolfo. He admitted to it during his confession. After Adolfo's death, Sarah ran to the police claiming to be a hostage. El Dubi came out soon after and was apprehended. Police stormed the building and found Omar hiding under a bed. Police questioned all three soon after, and much of the public knowledge of the cult's crimes comes from these interrogations. Sarah maintained her innocence, claiming that she originally left Matamoros for Mexico City, thinking she was embarking on a vacation with Adolfo. But she did not pack a bag, and her parents knew nothing of any vacation plans. She could not explain why she didn't turn herself in when she was outside the apartment. She also knew too much about Adolfo's drug deals and murders to be credibly innocent. Sarah insisted she only knew a little bit about Adolfo's darker side through bits and pieces he told her. She nevertheless recounted many of his crimes, including telling investigators that Adolfo raped victims before killing them. Sarah's status quickly went from that of a key witness to a key suspect. El Dubi was also forthcoming in his confession. He was initially horrified by his role in killing his padrino, but he soon regained the swagger he'd had in the cult, telling police that nothing they did could affect him. He seemed to believe Adolfo would soon return and deliver him from their custody. Even after his death, Adolfo's mystical manipulation was largely intact. Omar was not so willing to confess. He insisted that he had nothing to do with any cult murders and was merely Adolfo's lover and housekeeper. This was true, in part. Omar was not as involved with the cult activities, and he lived in Mexico City, several hundred miles from Matamoros. But eventually, he acknowledged his presence at the sacrificial murder of Jorge Montes's roommate, Ramon. El Dubi was convicted of murder for killing Adolfo and Martin and sentenced to 30 years. Jorge Montes received a 35-year sentence for the murder of Ramon. Sarah was found innocent of the killing of Adolfo and Martin, but guilty of criminal association. She was sentenced to six years in prison. In 1994, she was found guilty of multiple counts of murder for the cult sacrifices and received a 62-year sentence. At the same time, Elio, Little Seraphine, Sergio, and a follower named David Cerna received 67-year sentences. Omar was never sentenced. Once in custody, his health began to falter severely. Less than a year after his arrest, in February of 1990, he died of a heart attack at age 24 due to complications of AIDS. Two of the followers were charged but did not stand trial. Malio Fabio Ponce Torres, another of the original five Matamoros initiates, and Ovidio Hernandez, Elio's brother, were never apprehended. Salvador Vidal was charged with possession and sale of cocaine, but never with murder. Authorities claimed he was a good officer who had been corrupted by drug money and his belief in witchcraft. They also insisted that no other police were involved in Adolfo's cult. Vidal faced 7 to 25 years in prison for the drug charges, but there's no evidence he ever served any time. Rancho Santa Elena became the property of the Mexican government. It stood idle after the killings, since no one was willing to work there. Occasional nighttime digging of the ground, likely by magic practitioners looking for body parts, 
gave rise to rumors that the cult had not disbanded. But there was little activity to suggest that was true. Adolfo's mother, Delia, appeared in a Miami court on May 8, 1989, two days after her son's death. She was there to answer charges that she had destroyed several apartments. Delia told the assembled media that neither she nor her children had anything to do with the occult. The judge sentenced her to two years in prison, but allowed her to go free on a $2,500 bond while her lawyer appealed the case. But Delia soon fired her lawyer after he tried to collect his legal bills. She claimed Adolfo's body on May 20th, then disappeared soon after. She never served time in prison, and her fate is unknown. The city of Matamoros endured a storm of bad publicity in the wake of the murders. But tourism the following year was relatively unaffected. Crowds were down slightly, but the crimes did not have a lasting effect. Students arrived again for spring break the next year. In the often hectic pace of the border, even the memory of Adolfo's crimes faded with time. Law enforcement suspected for a while that some of the cult members who were never apprehended or charged had moved to another city and picked up where they left off. Several of the cult's followers disappeared before authorities could question them. But if the followers did continue, they never attracted any attention from the police. It seems likely the cult died with Adolfo. Adolfo did leave behind one mystery that suggested the story was not over. When officers searched his condo in Calle Pomona, they found a room with an altar in which many of the cult's Mexico City rituals and initiations were held. Among the blood and animal carcasses on the floor was a large, clean circle where none of the filth had accumulated. Something had been there and been taken away shortly before the police search, the Nganga. Adolfo and the others had removed it when they escaped, but they did not take it with them on the run. After all was said and done, Adolfo's original Nganga was still out there. It was never found. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of The Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. As always, we thank you for listening. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Tom Larkin and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.